Clarita here, and I've got a new sponsor, DistroKid. If you want to release your music into the world, DistroKid's the easiest way to get your music into all the major streaming platforms, unlimited uploads, and keep 100% of your royalties. And because you're a Design Freaks listener, you get 30% off. Go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash Design Freaks. DistroKid. to the Design Freaks podcast. This is a show about record covers, graphic design, music history, design history. Uh, my name's Clarita and I'm a Seattle-based graphic designer. I'm an artist. I'm a record collecting person. I'm not, I just want to say this is the Metallica episode. Uh, welcome to episode 23. Um, I'm calling it Kill the Lightning of Puppets because I'm going to be talking about those first three records. But look, you guys, I am not uh, a metalhead. Okay. I know what I like. I enjoy it. I want to know more. I want to learn. Um, but my taste is pretty basic when it comes to that. I really wanted to talk about, um, the master of puppets cover. So, and then a few other factoids about the, uh, other two. So here we go. Here is episode 23. Hey, guess what? Guess what, everybody? It's also the two-year anniversary of my show. And I want to say, first of all, thank you to all my supporters uh, and listeners. Thank you for your support. Y'all are the coolest. Uh, And thank you all for sending me notes, DMs, emails. Um, Oh, my gosh, I've gotten presents. I've met amazing artists, and I've also reconnected with friends this way. Thank you, and please, I want to encourage you to continue to support by listening, subscribing, all that, and donate if you can. I have a website, designfreakspodcast.com. This episode is dedicated to Jason Narita. Uh, We love and miss you, Jason, forever. So I thought because he was so funny, I think Jason would appreciate a silly Metallica episode. Um, We're going to talk about the first three albums, the uh, artist behind the Master Puppets album cover, some fun facts about the other two, plus for my type nerds, the history of Eurostyle. So I guess we should start in chronological order with Kill 'Em All. Um, Number one. Kirk Hammett joins the band barely a month before the album sessions began. A lot of people know this stuff. The Metallica Vacancy was a golden opportunity for Exodus guitarist Kirk Hammett, even though it meant diving straight into the deep end. Um, He had a week to learn the songs, and then they started playing shows. So that sounds really intense. And then every show kept getting better. (laughs) Goodbye, you. 
Meet the real you. Okay, here's the spooky October part of this. The album is recorded in a haunted mansion. Spooky October The album, Kill Em All, was recorded at Music America, a low-budget recording studio located in a large old house in Rochester, New York. Though the ballroom on the mansion's second floor was acoustically excellent, who wrote this, Wayne? The band recorded their drums and guitar amps up there for extra ambiance. It says it also contains some decidedly disconcerting supernatural energy. The actual studio was in the basement of this huge old colonial type of clubhouse, Lars Ulrich told Metal Hammer in 2008. On the second floor, there was a huge ballroom, perfect for getting a good drum sound. The problem was the place was fucking haunted. That was a quote, dad. I had to have someone else up there the whole time I was recording. My cymbals would start spinning for no reason. It was scary. I would be more disappointed if nothing happened. You know, your cymbals are spinning a little. No one gets hurt. You got to get scared. You got a story to tell people for the rest of time. I think it's a pretty great ghosty compromise. You know what I mean? It wasn't quite the shining experience. Sounds like some weird stuff happened. Okay, cool. The other one is about metal up your ass being the original title. Um, Everybody knows that. It's actually, but I didn't know why they didn't go with it. I knew that was the original title, but apparently it was too obscene. Seriously, we had the whole thing mapped out, even down to the cover we wanted. Lars said in an interview, we were going to have a hand coming through a toilet bowl holding a machete dripping with blood and the toilet had barbed wire around it. (laughs) Honestly, there's no barbed wire and that looks more like a wizard staff than a machete. Come on, you guys, there's no blood. Let me just uh, read a little bit more about metal up your ass. I'm reading from uh, metallicafandom.com here. Metal up your ass was recorded on November 29th, 1982 at the old Waldorf in San Francisco. Uh, The support band was Exodus, featuring Metallica's soon-to-be lead guitarist, Kirk Hammett. The band played all their original material, nine songs, that they'd written up to that point, which included all the songs from their previous demo, No Life Till Leather, and two new songs, which were later released on the Megaforce demo. Two covers of Diamond Head songs were played, Am I Evil and The Prince. However, The Prince was not recorded as the tape had run out. Whoa, analog problems. (laughs) Both the name and album cover of this demo was to be used as the band's first album name and sleeve. However, Metallica's record company did not let them use the name Metal Up Your Ass. Hmm. Cliff renamed the album when he, out of emotion, he said, I hate the managers. Let's just kill them Kirk Hammett came up with the title, Ride the Lightning, while reading Stephen King's The Stand. Don Brodigum painted the art for the cover of that book, and also the Master Puppets cover, of course. Um, The phrase, Ride the Lightning, was taken from the book. The Stand is about a pandemic, or the aftermath of a pandemic. Um, So, also notable, I guess, the title track to the 1987 album Among the Living by Anthrax is based on the stand as well. So a deadly virus called Captain Trips 
which sounds terrifying, engineered as an advanced biological weapon by the government, is accidentally released across America and the world, causing 99.4% of the entire world's population to die. Um, so if you want to know where QAnon gets their brilliant ideas about our current pandemic that we're in, uh, go ahead and read this book and it'll probably offer up some insight. And as the story goes, Hammett was reading the horror master's book, The Stand, when inspiration struck. There was one passage where this guy was on death row and he was waiting to ride the lightning. Um, so yeah, I guess electric chair reference. Um, he said, wow, I remember thinking that's a great song title. I told James and it ended up being a song and the title of the album. Um, another thing about, uh, ride the lightning, the tolling bell that opens ride the lightning's epic third track is actually something way heavier. So yeah, basically Lars Ulrich was banging an anvil with a metal hammer and it sounds really pretty. You know, there's lots of other info about Ride the Lightning. Yeah, it's a dark album. My favorite is Master Puppets. I gotta say, the neighbor kid from my street gave me a, a, a tape that he had put scotch tape over the holes and put, you know, his little crude handwriting, Master of Puppets. And so I hadn't even seen the album artwork when I first heard. So I got to hear the music first. Loved it. Then... You look at the artwork and it's incredible. So who painted that? It's a painting. It was done with acrylic and airbrush by Don Brodigam. So Don Brodigam was born on September 12, 1946 in Patterson, New Jersey. He attended and graduated from the SVA, School of Visual Arts in New York City in 1971. And throughout his 35-year career, he painted over 3,000 book and record covers as well as numerous advertisements and magazine covers. So his paperback cover art for Stephen King's The Stand uh, won cover of the year by marketing bestsellers in 1980, and he's often credited for pioneering the use of black paint on book illustrations. If you look at these Stephen King covers he did, I'm going to obviously always put stuff up on uh, designfreakspodcast.com. So The Stand, incredible. You have the the creepy like, darkness and the blue bird head having the same eye. Um, and then in 1979, he painted Night Shift. The book cover featured Brodigam's artwork. The eyeballs are great. The gauze, the technique on the gauze. It's, it's incredible. I love it. Okay, so by the mid-80s, it was abundantly clear that Brodigam had a talent uh, for passionately capturing another artist's work with his own original artwork. Um, however, prior to his album artwork in the latter half of the 80s, Brodigam had been commissioned to do the album covers for James Brown's The Payback from 1973 and Reality from 1974. And now I'm going to jump into Don's uh, Discogs, and I know you all probably know how Discogs works, but I never realized until I started doing this podcast that you could look up album artists by that category. You can you can look up the visual artists, the ones that were credited. So if you look up, I'm going to have a obviously a link to Don's Don's page. You can see his whole body of work here, 
And before he worked for James Brown, he did some other like gospel album covers. And man, it's kind of endearing to see that. And a lot of us, uh, we kind of improve our skills in the public eye because we're, we're doing this stuff for money and, you know, people are kind of seeing our improvements over time, but it's, it's really cool. I mean, I'm just going to click on this first ever album cover. This was from 1972. It's called Reverend Maceo Woods and the Christian Tabernacle Concert Choir. God save your people. Um, it's not the worst thing I've seen, but if you put it side by side with those Stephen King covers and, you know, Dr. Feelgood and, uh, you know, Master Puppets, I mean, it's kind of funny for him, you know? I love a bad mural, but it, that's what it reminds me of when you drive around LA and you see those bad murals where like the mouth is just a little off. Um, and it reminds me of my very first job I ever had in Seattle. And it was at the Tower Records by the Space Needle in 1998. And uh, we had as part of the uh, new record promotion, uh, the record label would get the site of the building. And I'm sorry, no shade, but like, I actually loved it. It was so, they were bad. They were bad. They were funny. And it probably caused more recognition. It, it created more interaction with the viewer being bad because you had to sit there and try to figure out, is that Dolly Parton? Is that Cher or Jack White? Yeah. So I don't know. I, it's endearing this first record that, that Don painted. It's just endearing in that way that I, that I love about thrift store art. By the time he gets to James Brown, the payback 1973, just super cool. And he's also trying out different techniques In this one, he's using a stippled effect. James Brown's face is painted more traditionally, but then all of the imagery around his face, he's kind of gazing off revenge fantasy, kind of. And and uh, the fantasy parts are like kind of more stippled. It's really interesting the way he expresses these ideas. And there's like a scenario with two women and there's literally money being exchanged and painting on the gatefold is a bit different, it's like some farm scene, but the back definitely looks like it's uh, cohesive with the front, reminding me of uh, Alex Gray a little bit on the back. Moving on, you keep going down that Discogs page, and then you get to James Brown Reality from 1974. It's He's getting darker at this point. So it's really cool to, to look through an artist's uh, progression in this way. Um, and then you get to, you know, he did the Trogs, which is super cool. The Axe Offering is really neat. This is where he's sort of perfecting that airbrush look. And then M.O.P. By far his most recognizable and undeniable contribution to cover art was his painting for Metallica's Master of Puppets album in 1986. The artwork was designed by both the band and their manager, Peter Mensch, and painted by Brodigan. So this is the cool thing. In 2015, the album was the first record in the metal genre to be selected for preservation by the Library of Congress. Uh, yeah, so basically, James Hetfield had an idea of what he wanted it to look like. Not sure how intense the art direction was from him, but he did create a small sketch 
uh, for Dawn to work from. And uh, it was, I'm imagining, crudely drawn. Uh, you know, just like proof of concept stuff. You got the hands there. You got some gravestones and stuff. He copied Hetfield's original sketch exactly, taking his rough outline as the master plan, which is why you may have noticed the hands in the top corners, the master's hands, have no fingernails and look childlike. They do. They look like um, a 3D rendering of a, of a kid's drawing. It's creepy. And if you think about all the metal album covers that have like hands with giant talons, fingernails, crazy, you know, demon claws. I mean, it's almost creepier to know with no fingernail. It's weird. Um, and it says here uh, that wasn't Hetfield's plan in the beginning, but the final result was impressive enough for such mistakes to be overlooked. If anything, it added to the unique quality of the illustration. I agree. I think it's it's weirder. You also notice the the war type of uh, symbolism with with the helmet and the dog tags and everything like that. Surprisingly, Brodigam gave away the seventeen inch by seventeen inch painting to John and Marsha Sazula, who signed Metallica to their very first label deal with Megaforce Records. Uh, in 2002, they sold it on eBay for $7,000. Okay. Um, on eBay for seven grand, the original Master Puppets painting. Six years later, it was auctioned at Christie's in New York and fetched $28,000. Okay. Well, also art value. The art value thing is all screwy too. Um, sadly, the artist passed on January 27th, 2008 after losing the battle to stomach cancer. So RIP Don. Um, and it says here, he may not be a household name, but his artwork sits in homes, music shops, and proudly emblazoned on the chests of music lovers all over the world. Yes. T-shirts and posters and record covers. So while master of puppets is full of heavy hitters like battery and the title track, uh, and those are kind of the reasons it's so revered today. The artwork has taken on a life of its own. Just compare it to other albums that are deemed essential. You don't see nearly as many t-shirts and posters of album covers like the Rolling Stones' Let It Bleed or Blondie's Parallel Lines, despite them being just as vital to contemporary music canon. And they were played on the radio. And I do think the artwork had something to do with that. Prove me wrong. So, have you guys seen Hypnotizing Power? This is the documentary. It's the story of Master of Puppets. A lot about Cliff in there if you're a Cliff fan. They use uh, Eurostyle, a digital version of Eurostyle, um, throughout the documentary. So, nice on the eyes. But there's some weird stuff going on there. Does anyone else think that James Hetfield is sort of a history revisionist as far as the songs go? Is he trying to say that Disposable Heroes was about football? Tell me if, if you disagree. I don't get it, but uh, it's clearly about war. The whole album is. That's a theme. It's not about football. Okay, anyway, correct me if I'm wrong. That's a great documentary, though. Hypnotizing Power, the story of Master of Puppets. Yes. Okay. 
Eurostyle is a geometric sans-serif typeface designed by Aldo Navarese in 1962. Uh, he created Eurostyle for one of the best-known Italian foundries called Nebbiolo. Uh, not, is it spelled like the wine? I don't remember. In Turin. He developed Eurostyle to succeed the similar Microgramma, which he had also helped design. So Microgramma was a tilting font with only uppercase letters. He resolved all the limitations with that first one. He sort of, this was a spin-off of Microgramma. So micro, it sounds like a miniature grandmother, but now I'm looking at that one. Yep, you can see it's way more squared off, like the top of the A. It's just super, creates a really flat line on the top of your, this looks like industrial. So getting back to Euro style, the square shapes with their rounded corners evoke the appearance of television screens from the 1950s. It's particularly popular in science fiction artwork. Euro style and its antecedent, micro-grandma, had a near monopoly on science fiction typefaces through the end of the 20th century before Ray Larabi, seeing an open opening in the market, began designing um, computer fonts. And those kind of took over the sci-fi. As usual, if you want to see what I'm talking about, I always encourage people to go over to fontsanduse.com and then you can type in Eurostyle and see all the different ways it's been used over the years. Um, it's really incredible how versatile this font is. Um, it looks super tough and you can use it with metal covers and pair it with the craziest display fonts, but it's also industrial looking. So you, it's on clock faces, vintage, like seventies, uh, stereo consoles, the buzzcock spiral scratch EP, you name it, tangerine dream, tons of records. It's endless, but it's so fun to see all the different ways you've seen it. And then you'll start to notice it everywhere. You're welcome. That was it. Uh, metal up your kill the lightning of puppets ass. I guess. That's the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support over the last two years. Take care. Don't fade to black. We'll get through this. Stay safe. Love you all. Bye. 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 Bye.